Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, Pop-Up Magazine pops up in Brooklyn, and to see it, you have to be there. I think that what we're doing, even though it's a little bit different, doesn't necessarily set us completely apart from that tradition and from that work as well. Um, so I still think that it's important to have a lot of different kinds of media hitting on different cylinders. And then, New York bringing you down? Here's how one fed-up Brooklynite quit his whining and did something about it. We want to do right by the land, and when it comes down to it, wine is a luxury product. And I don't think it's right to be growing a luxury product in any non-sustainable ways. been reading the news, chances are the person who wrote the news you've been reading was just fired. The last few weeks have seen sweeping layoffs at BuzzFeed, HuffPost, TechCrunch, Yahoo, USA Today, and hundreds of local newspapers owned by Gannett. I would say it's a bad time for digital media, but that would imply that there was once a good time for digital media. So how do you get people to pay for journalism? Pop-Up Magazine has one successful, albeit niche, solution. Pop-Up Magazine, a podcast, documentary film, comedy show, play, and concert all wrapped up into one, presents nonfiction stories on stage in front of a live audience. The shows aren't recorded, so if you weren't lucky enough to snag a ticket, you missed it. In many ways, it's the antithesis of digital journalism. It can't be bookmarked for later, you can't consume it on your phone, and people are actually paying for it. To tell us more about how Pop-Up Magazine all comes together, we welcome back senior producer Aaron Edwards. Thanks so much for coming on to Woman 2 BK. Thanks for having me. So Pop-Up Magazine, I've, I've been to one, and it's a little bit of a hard concept to explain to somebody who hasn't seen it. So right. can you try to do that? Totally. Um, so uh, Pop-Up Magazine is a live magazine created for a stage, a screen, and an audience. And we basically bring together some of our favorite writers, uh, documentary filmmakers, photographers who present live stories that they've reported, that they've researched. Uh, so it kind of feels like a live reading. It feels like a podcast on stage. And all the stories are accompanied by original music, by our live band. So when you go to the show, you're really in this immersive experience where you get to really feel the stories as opposed to just reading them or just listening to them. And is it formatted like a normal magazine with like front of book, back of book, perfume samples? Yeah, exactly. So depending on the show, every single show is different. Sometimes you might lead the show with something short that's like a front of book piece and we'll have like meteor features toward the center of the show and wrap it up with something that you might find at the end of a magazine. So yeah, the cadence of the show sometimes follows that of a magazine. And how do you go about, as an editor, selecting the pieces that are going to make up an issue at Papa Magazine? Yeah, so uh, one of the things I really love about our team is that we come from a lot of diverse backgrounds. Some of us have been in magazines, some of us have hosted podcasts before, some of us have worked on websites. Uh, and so we all have this sort of story sensibility where we really look for the best stories that we can find. And we spend a lot of time just hunting for those stories. We talk to people we've worked with in the past. We take cold pitches as well. Um, there's actually you know, a contributor guide on our site for folks if they want to pitch us. And then we look for stories that have a resonance that are going to really pop in a theater and um, that also stay true to, to narrative and to a lot of traditions of storytelling that really track well to our show. So, um, so we cast a really wide net and try to bring a lot of cool people into the fold. 
And have these stories been presented or published elsewhere, or are they all original for Pop-Up? All the stories that you'll see in Pop-Up Magazine in that iteration have never been seen before. So sometimes we might work with people who have done a project of some sort that maybe is in a certain stage, and they'll adapt it for our show before they release it. Most of the time, the stories you're seeing have never been heard before, so it's a really special, special thing. And I know that you've only been with Pop-Up for six months, but can you give me an example of one of your favorite stories uh, that you've worked on or that you've seen? Yeah, yeah. It's so hard to choose, honestly, because I started seeing the show back in 2015 when they started doing a national tour. And I saw it in L.A. And I guess there's one story that always sticks with me. And I think people have this kind of uh, example as well, where there's one story that they just always think about. For me, it was actually Jenna Wortham did a story um, where there was live shadow puppetry that accompanied her piece. Um, And it was a story about memory and technology. And it was just this incredible thing that I'd never seen anything like it before. So she was on stage talking about this guy, and um, it was a story about his his memory loss and sort of his experience um, using technology to to jolt his memory and to share his experiences with the world. And, and while she was telling the story, there was this incredible shadow puppetry that was being done on stage that sort of reenacted the piece as well. And I was just sitting there in my seat just kind of in awe of, of it all. And, um, and that was the moment that I was like, okay, if I don't see this show every single year, I'm gonna hopefully at some point get to work with them too. I yeah. saw that issue too, and I think she closed out the show in the yeah. one that I saw, and the whole audience was wrapped, and it was yeah. this beautiful, like, um, I think Asian style, like shadow puppets. Mm-hmm. And what I loved about that issue was that it really did feel like it was a one night only thing, and mm-hmm. what was happening in the theater was happening in the theater, and things went wrong. Like there was also a magician, I think, in that issue. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. something didn't go right with his magic. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's the technical term. Well, um, it's that's the the beauty and the excitement of live. Like anything can happen. Pretty exactly. Much. Yeah. And and I I loved that that maybe that segment didn't actually go as it was supposed to go, and that the whole audience was sort of there on that ride mm-hmm. together. Um, so you mentioned uh, Jenna's piece was about memory, and that's mm-hmm. actually the theme of the winter issue. Is that right? There are some stories, yeah. So we have a nice mix for the for the winter issue this time. We have like Francesca Mari, who's telling a really beautiful story about um, about Alzheimer's and about treatment uh, and some interesting experiments with that. I can't tell you too much about the story, but it's a really really impactful and incredible story. Uh, James T. Green, who is a producer and artist, is doing a story about ringtones which is something that is pretty indelible in people's memory, you know, when we used to have custom ringtones. So he's going to do a really cool story about that. What was your best custom ringtone? Oh, man, I think I had Grown Woman by Beyonce at one point. Very (laughs) strong. What about you? I had, uh, do you remember that weird uh, video, Trollo Low? Oh, there no, was like a not. he was like a, a Russian singer from the 70s oh, um, okay. yeah, on yeah, some yeah. sort of like variety show. Yeah, and yeah. the song was called Trollolo. So and that was your ringtone. That was my ringtone. Okay, yeah. cool. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when you are setting, uh, say that it's like a written piece, mm-hmm. when you are setting that to music or you're finding accompanying visuals, do the authors of the piece come to you with ideas or as editors, is it your job to sort of matchmake with other visual elements and audio elements? Yeah, it's a really collaborative effort. And I say that uh, in the truest of terms. You know, it's it's a situation where sometimes people are just writers, you know, they're used to writing for magazines or used to writing for the web. And and sometimes, you know, we have to make sure that we take their style and apply it to illustrations. We have an incredible art team. 
that is amazing at just looking at a story and understanding how to visually represent it on stage. Uh, and then our, our house band, Magic Magic Orchestra, uh, we'll take that and then apply music to it. But it really comes from all parts of that story process. So the producer, the person doing the story, the artists, the musicians, we all talk about the look and feel and vibe of every story. Um, so it can come from anywhere. And we really encourage that with folks that we work with. So Pop-Up Magazine is doing really well. You guys regularly sell out your shows. Brooklyn yeah. is sold out. So it unfortunately, out, yeah. people can't go see it unless they have already gotten tickets. Why do you think it is that in sort of an era of the decline of traditional journalism, that Pop-Up Magazine has managed to capture the imagination of so many people? Yeah, I mean, I think before going into that, I, I should say that, you know, a lot of the work that our colleagues do at places across the media spectrum um, are doing really meaningful and impactful and important work. Um, so I think that what we're doing, even though it's a little bit different, doesn't necessarily set us completely apart from that tradition and from that work as well. Um, so I still think that it's important to have a lot of different kinds of media hitting on different cylinders. Absolutely. But, and it's not a replacement either, right, obviously. Right. You can't yeah. just go get your news once a quarter yeah, in a yeah. live environment. And, and Pop-Up Magazine is not a, you know, like a new show traditionally. Mm -hmm. So if it was the only thing you saw every year, you wouldn't really be keeping up with the current events necessarily. But what our show brings, I think, at least for me as well, is that there's this really beautiful kind of unspoken contract that happens when you go to see a show live. Uh, when you're just sitting down, you turn your phone off, and you experience something that is really special for you and the people in the audience. I think that's something that is a really powerful draw. And the fact that you know, if you don't see the show, you miss it. And that's something that we really care about is the feeling that you and the you know couple hundred or thousand people who are in that room with you are experiencing something together that you can then talk about. You know, I have friends who went to see that show with Jenna in 2015, and we still talk about those stories to this day. And that's a, a really nice shared experience that we're never gonna replace with anything else. Mm -hmm. So I think that feeling is something that you can't quite replicate anywhere else. So it's really it's really cool to see people have that experience and then and then share it and talk about it. After the show we usually have an after party or a lobby drink situation where folks just can meet the contributors, they can meet us, the producers, and it really feels like a family. So Yeah, I'm having a hard time thinking of something else in our culture that you can't see after the fact, that if, if you weren't there, it's ephemeral, it's ephemeral and it's mm -hmm. gone. Well, the closest thing to me is a play, you know? I uh, I've grew up loving theater. I grew up like hunched over my bed as a eight-year-old reading scripts all the time and before I could actually go to see my own like first Broadway show or something like that. And, uh, and I still always feel that way when I go to the theater every single time. And so uh, even though our show has so many different elements beyond just theatrical elements, there's music, there's uh, storytelling itself, there's so many pieces to it. It's still, when I, whenever I go to see the show and whenever I'm backstage, <clears throat> I always feel like I'm you know, out of play. And that's a really cool, cool feeling. Do you have any dream contributors that you would love to work with on Future Issues? Oh, man. Uh, Beyonce, if you're listening, if you'd like to tell a story at Pop-Up Magazine, we're available. Um, no, I mean, the people who I am really interested in seeing in the show are performers. You know, I we work with a lot of writers who, who find that they have this performance gene in them that they haven't really discovered before, and that's a really cool thing to see someone get on stage and then just kind of knock it out of the park. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm so interested in bringing people who are used to doing that as well into the show and seeing how they might take a spin on our style. So Yeah, do you ever have the experience of approaching, say, a writer who you love mm -hmm. and saying, I would love for you to do a piece or pop-up, and then being like, oh, I could never, I'm more of a oh, written word time. type person. Yeah, how do you time. How do you coax them out of that shell and let them know that it's going to be okay? I think that 
one of the things I love about our team is that the second that you start talking to, and I was in that same position where I always kind of fancied myself as someone who was like a little bit more of like a performer and could do that kind of thing, but I was still nervous. I was talking to Pop-Up about doing a story myself. And the second I started talking to the team, I felt at ease. I just was like, these are people who are gonna take care of, of me and the story that we're gonna tell together. So that's that's really one of the, the biggest things that I think helps people feel comfortable is just when you can trust someone who's gonna take your work and, and make it even greater than what it already is, then you can just kind of sit back and just be a part of the process. So I think that we find people, once they get on stage and do that first show, it feels so natural to them and they're just ready to do it. And then we coach them, we help them through the process, and then they're ready to do another show. You know, I think one of the experiences we have is that people who do you know, one show are just so excited to do more in the future. They're like, can I do more of them? Because uh, it is a really special, cool feeling to get on stage and, and, and tell a truth about something that, you, uh, that you've experienced or that you know. And um, yeah, people really rise to the occasion. So we mentioned that the Brooklyn show is sold out, it but sold where out. can people see Pop-Up Magazine? Yeah, so if you go to popupmagazine.com, we still have tickets for our DC show and our Austin show, which are all both in, in February. So just head to the site and uh, tell a friend. And then also we're going to have our spring issue um, for 2019 coming up in May. So if you go to the website and sign up with your email address, we'll let you know when those tickets go up for the first time. And uh, people can jump on it early before before we sell out, hopefully. Great. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining yeah. us. Thank you for um, having me. I appreciate your, your time. Of course. Thank you so much. Magazine is crushing it, and so is our next guest. Two and a half years ago, Todd Cavallo and his wife Crystal left Brooklyn for the Hudson Valley in order to pursue their dream of producing wine. Todd joined us recently to talk about hybrid grapes, sulfites, and the scientific rationale behind burying a cow horn filled with the manure of a lactating heifer under a full moon. Here's that conversation. Um, welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you for having me. So natural wine is having a bit of a moment, uh, but I feel like nobody knows what the terms really mean. Uh, Can you tell me the difference between like low intervention wine, biodynamic, natural, organic? Oh, what should we be looking for? Starting on our with labels? the tough questions. Okay. <laughs> um, so on the labels is hard. There's not a lot of stuff that's actually going on the labels, and if it is, I don't know if you always want to believe it. Mm -hmm. Natural wine is kind of an all-encompassing thing that has parts of all the others in it. So usually it involves at least organic viticulture, if not biodynamic. So you're trying to be as natural as you can in the vineyard. And then in the winery, it's it's basically low intervention. It's going to be low sulfur um, and then no other additives, usually unfined, unfiltered. So um, what a lot of people say is nothing added, nothing removed. And that's kind of our belief as well. It's A lot of people have a lot of opinions about it. My opinion is just that it's the best way to uh, express the, the grapes in the region that you're coming mm -hmm. from, terroir, if you want to call it that. That's why we vinify in the way that we do. But the other kind of interesting factor is organic wine, at least in the United States, can be labeled organic or grown with organic grapes. And in the winery, you can have a number of additives, not the same, you know, 200 or something that you can add to any non-organic wines, but you don't necessarily know what's happening 
in the winery if something's labeled made with organic grapes, for example. Interesting. So you're sort of looking um, at two different parts of the winemaking process. One is everything that's happening with the actual growing of the grapes, and the other one is what's happening once they are being turned into wine. Right, exactly. And tell me a little bit about what you do at Wild Ark. So we are fairly young. So we have uh, a little vineyard on our property, about an acre and a half. Most of it is going to be on its second leaf this year, which just means second year of growing, and some of it's on the third leaf. So we're not really going to be in production there for another two to three years to be able to use those grapes for wine. And so we're growing fully biodynamically, although, again, that usually implies a kind of a a closed system. You think of the farm as an organism where there are no inputs. Um, You usually will have animals and be using their manure for for your fertilizer. You keep a compost pile and all of your scraps go into that. So you're breaking that down to use for more of your soil. We don't have animals yet because we don't have the infrastructure or the resources to do that. So we're buying in a lot of our biodynamic preps from other farms. But we're also staying fully organic, so we're not spraying any of the non-organic fungicides that kind of are usually considered necessary in a region that's uh, cooler and wetter. Uh, And then while we're figuring out what's going on with our farm, we're buying in fruit from other local growers and kind of helping them move towards more organic or biodynamic practices. So you just made biodynamic wine sound very normal, uh, where it's just like, oh, yeah, we've got some manure, we're going to spread around. But actually, there's some like otter sure, parts yeah. of some biodynamic wine growing practice. Can you tell me about that? Right. So yeah, um, Rudolf Steiner, who is the, the founder of uh, biodynamics, had a lot of ideas about uh, the universe and cosmic balance. Right. And so people may know him uh, from Steiner schools right? and also yep. from like satanic sex parties. Uh, maybe. I don't <laughs> know about the sex parties. I was never invited. Um, he's, he's a but, famous spiritualist yes, and occultist. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but he was, I mean, he was all also a contemporary of Waldorf, so the Waldorf schools and Mm -hmm. the Steiner schools share a lot of the same kind of focus on nature and natural learning. And a lot of the stuff that kind of carries into modern day biodynamics is the more kind of uh, observable, repeatable stuff. Like the thing that people always like to point to is the burying of a cow horn filled with cow manure. Uh, You do it at the spring equinox and you dig it up at the fall. People love that one. Yeah. It does capture the imagination, right? I always picture the vintner like wearing some type of hooded cloak (laughs) as he's burying the horn full of shit. Some people chanting in the the background. Yes, exactly. Yes. So the, yeah, the shit filled horn. I didn't know if we could curse. I'm glad you gave me the go-ahead. Um, but, and his, you know, his idea is that the horn acts as a cosmic antenna and brings in the cosmic energy of the universe into the manure that you then spread on your fields the next season. Sure, that's a little wacky and out there. But also, it just so happens that the material that the horn is made of is exactly the right porosity that you need to increase the bioactivity in the manure over that six-month period being buried. And so there have been studies done where they look at manure treated that way, manure composted naturally or normally. And the stuff that was buried in the horn happens to be more bioactive. So there is some kind of scientific side of each of those things. Sure, there's a scientific rationale to the more witchy-woo side of it. Right, exactly. So do you do that part of it? Uh, So we haven't, we don't have our own animals yet, Uh right. So the the 500 prep, which is the cow horn manure we're buying in from a farm down in Virginia, the Josephine Porter Institute, um, they're kind of a big proponent across the East Coast. And so a lot of people who are getting started will get their preparations from them. Uh, and then, I love that it's called something as unsexy as 500 prep oh, as yeah. well. Oh, yeah, 500, 501 to yeah. 507. Yeah, okay. they're all numbered. And they're all kind of interesting and different. There's different uh, flowers, yarrow, chamomile, 
buried or hung in trees and things like stag's bladders and animal skulls. So it's all pretty witchy. It's uh, it's a little wacky, but like I said, there are, you can you can rationalize it on the scientific side if you think about sure, it. Sure, some of my favorite people are a little wacky. Yeah, exactly. So why was it a priority for you to use biodynamic farming practices in growing your grapes? Can you taste the difference? Do you think? Uh, I'm, that's if you were to blind me on a bunch of biodynamic versus non wines that were otherwise vinified similarly, I doubt that I or many people in the world could tell the difference, but many of the great wines of the world are grown that way and have been doing it for a long time and have been making wine for hundreds of years, especially in places like Burgundy. And if they are saying that they have done enough experimentation and tasting and can tell the difference, that's, you know, someone who I'm willing to kind of listen to. Um, they have the, the expertise and they have done the work. For me, it's, it's more along the lines of uh, I want to do uh, what's right for the, the land and the earth and the place. I mean, we live on our property with our daughter, which is what all the you know, small French producers say, too. I don't want my kids running out in the fields after I'm spraying these toxic fungicides and herbicides. So, you know, we want to do right by the land. And when it comes down to it, wine is a luxury product. And I don't think it's right to be growing a luxury product in any non-sustainable ways. So we're focusing on that and also focusing on the soil as part of the growing organism. And hopefully by creating a soil that's rich and biodiverse and we can grow our, our wine grapes and our food that we grow on our property and eventually chickens and sheep or whatever other animals we decide to use, Hopefully they'll kind of contribute to that health in our health. Your vines aren't mature enough to make your own wine from your right. own vines, but you are making wine from neighboring farms. Yes. Um, and so now when we talk about the actual making of the wine, are you low intervention on that side of things or, or what are sort of your guiding principles? Yes. Yeah, we're low intervention. Um, we do use a little bit of sulfur in about half of our cuvées. This year, about half of them have no sulfur in them. Although, you know, as we progress and see what happens to them, we may decide to give them a little dose before bottling. And why do you, I think that there's a lot of talk about like added sulfites. Tell me why a winemaker adds sulfites and what some of the challenges to not doing that are. So sulfites are a preservative and they act in kind of a couple different ways. One is that they're an antioxidant. So as you're making wine and moving it around and it's exposed to oxygen, it can start to oxidize. And that's something that you can taste in the wine. It'll turn a white wine a darker color. And just kind of over the course of before it gets put into the bottle, you want to make sure to limit that as much as possible. So that's one way to do that. Uh, but it's also an antibacterial, so it'll kill any of the bacteria that are present on the fruit as it comes in, which can fight with the yeast that are doing the fermentation that you want to make the alcohol and um, eventually bubbles if you're making a sparkling. And so you're dosing it with a little bit of sulfur or sometimes a lot to kill all that bad stuff to make sure that nothing is getting in there that shouldn't be. And it's kind of, you know, it's like the gluten of the wine world. Um, it's, <laughs> it's a very easy target for something that some people have a negative reaction to. And so uh, it's something that people can focus on. Right. Like that's the part of the wine that makes me feel bad. Not the fact that there's a lot of alcohol in it, which is a poison also. And I drank three bottles last night. So, Because this is the claim that natural wine doesn't give you the same type of hangover right. that uh, natural wine or the wine with a bunch of added sulfites does. Right. It's like, oh, if you could put you know, arsenic in a barrel of wine to kill everything that's in it and then somehow remove the arsenic, you still kind of would want to know that there was arsenic used in the right. process. Still not giving that to my child. Right. Yeah. Sure. Um, so tell me a little bit about the bottles that you have brought today. So these are uh, two 
two of our wines. One of them, the Chardonnay, was from the fall release, and this one that, that's unlabeled is going to be coming out in the spring. And they're with two of the growers that we've been working with, one who is about 10 minutes up the road from us. We got them to move off of herbicides right away, um, which is like the number one thing I think you can do for wine quality. You don't want to be spraying the glyphosate along the base of the vines every season. And uh, they're moving more towards organic antifungal sprays. And then this one is a hybrid grape called Marquette um, from way up outside of Troy, New York. So there's like a growing winemaking culture in New York State, Finger Lakes, North Fork. What are some of the challenges about growing in New York State? The, the, the climate is definitely challenging for vinifera, for the grapes that we know um, from Europe, mostly because of uh, the humidity in the summers. You know, we have the heat, we have the sunshine, we can ripen grapes, but it's very humid, and that means there's a lot of disease pressure from the different mildews and rot that can take the grapes and just turn them into mush on the vine. But downy and powdery mildew are, are the big ones. It just means you have to be a lot more careful about maintaining airflow so that things can dry out faster. So there's a lot of leaf pulling that gets done. We have our fruiting zone, it's called, where the grapes actually grow, trained a lot higher than you traditionally would. It's about a meter above the ground instead of, you know, 20 inches or so, uh, because the further from the ground you are, the less splashback you get from the ground when you get last year's kind of mildew and spores and things back up onto the grapes. But yeah, beyond that, it's also the winters. It's, It's hard because... There are hard freezes that can kill off a vine, and then the grafted vines, um, because all vines, even the vinifera all over Europe, uh, 99% of it is grafted onto American rootstock. Those graft points are very fragile as well, and so uh, we have to cover those up with dirt, a few inches of dirt every season to give them about 10 degrees or so of protection, which helps keep them safe. But then, you know, now you've got major temperature swings because of climate change. I'm feeling like I'm identifying very strongly with uh, grapes. I also (laughs) don't like winters here. I feel like I'm more of like a Paso Robles type varietal. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. My brother just got married out there this summer, and I was like, ooh, maybe I I chose the wrong area to be growing (laughs) grapes and come back out here and visit more often. so tell me about this lovely Chardonnay, very, very apple-y. Yeah. Um, what, how, is it, how is it aged? Uh, so this is uh, in neutral oak for 10 months. Okay. So um, we give it a little bit of whole cluster skin contact. Um, usually Chardonnay and most white wines are direct pressed, um, but we wanted to pull a little bit more out of the fruit because these are young vines. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right into neutral oak barrels to finish fermentation for 10 months. So neutral oak means there's not that kind of vanilla, uh, toasty, um, spicy notes. It's just it gives it the texture that a, a barrel gives it because of the oxygen transfer. Yeah, it's not like a huge buttery California right. Chardonnay. Exactly, it's but nice. it's not as lean and straightforward right. as a fully stainless because it's got a little bit of that air that gives it some texture. Very nice. Yeah. Can I try yeah. this hooch that you brought? Yeah, so. let's uh, <laughs> see if it's gonna. Oh, there we go. Still a little sparkling. Um, so again, this is a hybrid. Um, it's a lovely color. Yeah, so we, we tried to make it as light a rosé as we could, but mm-hmm. this grape is a grape that has red flesh, which is pretty unheard of mm. in the vinifera world, except for a few like Alicante Boucher. Um, but Marquette and a lot of the other hybrids have uh, the red flesh, and so you can't really make a, a light wine or a white wine out of them um, like you would with Pinot Noir when you make a Blanc de Noir. They compare this a lot to Pinot Noir, but I, I don't like to make direct comparisons to vinifera grapes. <laughs> Sets the bar a little too got high. Got it, got it. Got a lot of like strawberry on the nose, personally. So that's, uh, we did two days of what's called carbonic maceration, where you seal it in a tank with CO2. And what that does is it allows the enzymatic activity 
inside the fruit to start the alcoholic fermentation, and it makes a whole bunch of different compounds that you don't get with a normal yeast fermentation. So you get strawberry candy. It's common in Beaujolais, so sometimes you get like the bubble gum mm-hmm. banana that you uh, get in Beaujolais Nouveau. Yeah, this is delicious. Yeah, so we're excited about this. And this is one of our uh, zero sulfur cuvées this year. So this is just grapes and thyme, no uh, no additives, no sulfur, unfined, unfiltered, checks all the boxes. That's what we're going to call it, actually. It's great. I feel like this is a wine that I would be really happy with, and my like 21-year-old niece yeah. would be really happy with yeah. as well. And it's a good pizza wine, too. Oh, great. Always looking for that. Yeah. It seems like maybe a steep learning curve. How do you learn all this? YouTube? Uh, (laughs) There are a lot of people uh, in the Northeast who have been doing this who are super helpful. Our friend Andrew at Eminence Road, we crushed our first grapes up there with him. Uh, He's up in the Catskills, but he gets his fruit from the Finger Lakes. Our friend Deidre out in Vermont is doing a lot of this hybrid stuff, and she's growing biodynamically up there. And so we've had a lot of people, but there are a lot of resources that are available in books and in podcasts that weren't available, you know, uh, a few dozen years ago. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and for bringing wine for me to drink. More Absolutely. more guests doing that, please. <laughs> uh, thanks, Todd. Appreciate sure. your time. Thank you for having me. That's the show for today. Please join us on Wednesday when we channel our inner children with conversations about toys and the Black Comics Expo. Woman 2BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 